What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. I think it's safe to say that almost every American and many people across the globe have some kind of warm, fuzzy memory tied to a toy or a game or a doll made by Mattel or one of their famous subsidiaries. But is digital taking the place of old-fashioned toys? And is Mattel keeping up or on the way out? This is Bizography, the show where we dive into the strange but true stories of iconic companies. Whether they're a current bright star, in the midst of a massive dumpster fire, or settling into the dust heap of history, they all have a past worth knowing. I'm Dana Barrett. I'm a former Barbie owner, a tech executive, entrepreneur, and a TV and radio host. And over the course of my career, I've had, I think, two Barbie dolls, and I've interviewed thousands of business leaders and reported on the bright beginnings and massive flameouts of the brands we know and love. Some of their stories are inspiring, some are full of highs and lows, and some just make you go, aww. Bizography is a production of iHeartRadio and DB Media and is co-hosted, as always, by my producer and Hot Wheels guy, Nick Bean. Yeah, Hot Wheels. I had the fancy wheel, right, that you could store them all in. I had dozens of Hot Wheel cars. And I think I think everybody has something they remember playing within the floor of the living room or something that Mattel made. Yeah. And I think even kids sort of knew the Mattel name because the logo was on things. It was. And you sort of knew. And um, they did also have a lot of famous subsidiaries, which we are going to get to. They, you know, like a lot of the companies we've talked about on this season of Bizography, they ultimately ended up sort of buying up some other very well-known brands and intersecting with some well-known brands across the years. So we're going to get to all of that. But I think the question um, for this episode is, you know, are toys, are traditional toys kind of at the end of their usefulness? Is it all going to be digital and video games? Um, Are people, you know, sort of sick of the old-fashioned toys? And is Mattel going to die out because of that, if it's even true? 
um, or are they keeping up? And that's a really good point you make because I, we all go into the department store of your choice or, or, or general store of your choice. And the toy aisle is very different now than it was even 10 years ago. Yeah. They've got the big digital section with like the kids' tablets and stuff. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, this is just from my own sort of anecdotal uh, evidence, but it <laughs> seems to me that there are plenty of, you know, real life you know, plastic toys and mm. games that are still being played. I was at an event this past weekend um, where, you know, people were sitting outside on a lawn and there were multiple kids running around with Barbie dolls. Yeah. So I feel like from that perspective, first of all, I think the parents have some nostalgia. So they bring their kids to the same toys they had. Um, but I also think the kids are still enjoying those kinds of toys. So I don't actually think toys are over in that way. Toys are us maybe over, but toys themselves, are, I think, are, are going to be around for a while. Right. There's something about that physical playtime that you just can't replace with a device. Right? That's right. But I also think, uh, to your point about the toy aisle, there are a lot of now sort of connections between the physical toys and some kind of digital something, right? So whether it's an app that you can do something with yep. or some buttons on the toys that beep and whatever, <laughs> right, to annoy parents, right? right? But I, I mean, I think a lot more of the toys have some crossover into the digital world. There's a game also that you can play on the device, you know, on a tablet that goes with the toy, scorekeeping, social media ing. I mean, there's a lot of that too, I yeah, think. Yeah, there's a ton of integration. And as a as a person who has kids yeah. in the house, yeah. it's it is kind of interesting to see some of the same kind of toys I played with as a kid that now my four year old plays with and then he takes his tablet and scans the code on the bottom of his toy yeah. and it goes into his app. It's it's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so I think there's a crossover. And so the question of whether or not Mattel is going to stay relevant I mean, I think we can just sort of look at some of their numbers. I mean, first of all, who knew that Barbie had a YouTube channel? <laughs> Barbie's YouTube channel has 7.5 million subscribers. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. How does Hot Wheels compare? Let's do the co competition here. Okay. I'm, I'm the okay. Barbie girl, you so are. how does Hot Wheels compare? Hot Wheels is uh, <clears throat> not quite as hot as the Barbie YouTube channel, but it still has over 2 million subscribers to the channel. Yeah, and even just the company's channel, the Mattel channel, 84,000. Yeah. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. Yeah. Wait, 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 Dana. Did you just call yourself a Barbie girl? Yeah, I think I did. Wasn't there a song about that? But we digress, as usual. <laughs> Barbie also has a Twitter handle. She does. I don't think hers is quite as popular as, let's say, you know, the president's as an example. True. But she has 270,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah, and Hot Wheels, again, lower. But it's about 85,000. That's not too bad for a toy. Right. <laughs> I mean, and in fairness to the Hot Wheels in this scenario, like, it's a car. Yeah, valid. Barbie at least is like sort of a humanoid, right? <laughs> Um, also, you know, Barbie has really tried to stay up with, I'm talking about Barbie like she's a person, but the company has really tried to keep Barbie up to date in terms of the jobs that they give her, yes. the, you know, the clothes, um, and the, and the styles and all of that. They've tried different things to make her uh, multicultural, uh, and, and all of that. In fact, this, this year they announced, uh, the newest Barbie and she is a judge. Which is super cool. Right. But I wanted to interject for just half a second. Like you just said, you're talking about Barbie like she's a real person. 
that's part of what I think Mattel has done that's made them that successful, right? Is the personalization of toys. It's my car. It's a Hot Wheels little metal toy that was, what, 90 cents at the store? Right. But it's my car. Right. It, it's, that, it's that attachment that it's able to build for some reason. So that's why with the judge, how many pe- how many young girls now have seen Ruth Bader Ginsburg, even totally. as little bitty girls? Yep. And now they see they can have their own Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it doesn't have to be her. It can be me. Yeah, right. In that judge. That's really cool. Yeah, exactly. And I think also, you know, they've, to your point, I think, humanize the toy because first of all we do say like we call Barbie Barbie by her name like we don't call we don't say my doll Barbie like we just say my Barbie yeah I don't yeah I don't think I've ever said go you know with nieces where's your Barbie doll it's right. just where's, where's your Barbie, where's your Barbie? Yeah. right and then on top of all of that um they've made tons and tons of movies cartoons essentially yes. with Barbie <laughs> um in them and then they're really staying current now because also in 2019, this year, Mattel, not really Barbie so much, but another doll line, they're actually releasing their first ever line of gender-neutral dolls. Really? So that is really staying modern. Yeah, definitely keeping with the times. Yeah, it's a collection called Creatable World, and you can sort of dress these dolls however you want, and they can be whatever gender you want them to be. That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. And speaking of the digital movies... Mm-hmm. There is actually a live-action Barbie movie in the works. A live, like, real? Because I know that most of the Barbie movies have been, like, you know, the digital animated stuff. A live-action real people movie? Yeah, it made me think about one a few years back with Tyra Banks. But that one wasn't... I thought it was Barbie, but I researched it, and I guess Mattel never approved of it. Right. So that one was, like, Barbie-esque. It wasn't (laughs) actually Barbie, but Tyra Banks played a Barbie-like doll. Right. She was an Eva doll. Yes. Um, But there is a real Mattel-sanctioned live-action Barbie movie that is going to start, may have already started filming. There's not a lot of detail out about it already, but it's supposed to come out in 2020. Wait for it, starring Margot Robbie. That's probably a really good choice. She's one of the biggest stars out there right now. That's crazy. And she does look a lot like a Barbie. Yeah, valid point. So totally (laughs) perfect. I have to say, though, if you're somebody who's been listening to our show because you love business and you don't really care that much about toys, that... Mattel is the number one global toy company today. Yes, it is. So I'm not worried about them. They had over $5 billion in total sales worldwide in 2018. $5 billion. Yeah. Yeah, I think we just debunked our argument earlier of the digital toys taking over. I don't... $5 billion? Yeah. And that's just the one company, Mattel. Right. Well, it's the parent wow. company, right? And they, like we said, they own a lot of right. subsidiaries now, and that includes all of their subsidiaries, and that's a worldwide number. But still, yeah, it's a lot. I think they're okay. <laughs> I'm not super worried. Right. You know, it's not a super high dollar stock, um, but I also think it's probably a. I'm, listen, do not take financial advice from me, but I would just say I think to some extent it's probably one of those stocks that you could buy and hold um, and not really worry about it going away. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's not like the kind of you know if you invest in you know Impossible Burgers or something, you <laughs> never know what's going to happen trend wise next year. But I think you with a company like Mattel. You know, or a Coca-Cola, companies like that, you sort of know they're kind of, they're here. Yeah, it's definitely not a fad. Does not appear to be a fad. Right. No, it's been around a while. (laughs) But listen, it is a company that's been around a while. It started really in the 40s and 50s, the 1940s and 50s. And the story really starts, though, with a love story. So we're going to get to that right after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade. 
with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Who doesn't love a good love story? <laughs> I mean, especially when it has to do with the start of a toy company. It feels like very Mr. and Mrs. Claus. To me. Oh, I didn't think about that. Right? Good point. You know, they were the first, you know, toy makers. That's true. Who had a company that, you know. Global. Yes. Yeah. And really had the best supply chain of all time. That's true. You know, if we're, if we're being honest. Um, but look, I mean, the story of Mattel really does start with a love story. It was the story of uh, the relationship and eventual marriage of Ruth Mosco and Isaac Elliott Handler, who in his younger years was known as Izzy, which mm -hmm. was short for Isaac. They were both, uh, they were the same age, I think. When I was doing the research, it looked like they were both born in 1916. Uh, Ruth was born to older Jewish immigrant parents in Denver, Colorado. She was actually raised by an older sister and her sister's husband, who were pretty successful. And so they lived in a pretty good part of town in, in the Denver area. And Again, that same year, 1916, uh, Elliot is born in Denver also, but his parents aren't quite as successful uh, as Ruth's older sister. And so they live in kind of like the bad boy neighborhood, like the rougher neighborhood a little oh, bit, right? So this is kind of West Side Story-ish. You saw where I was going with that. <laughs> and it and so the story starts really in the 1930s when now they're teenagers. So 1932, age 16, uh, Ruth gets her first car and she's, because, you know, they were, she was at a good family. Right. They could afford that. So she had this convertible, and she's driving down the street in Denver, and she catches sight of this good-looking bad boy, <laughs> you know, and gets a crush. 
And turns out that that, of course, that bad boy was Izzy Elliott Handler, but he also apparently had seen a picture of her at a friend's house, coincidentally, and had a crush on her. That's so crazy. So they ended up meeting shortly after that, I think, at a school dance. And remember, he didn't have money. And so the way those dances were set up, I love this story, by the way. The way, I I just love a love story. (laughs) The way the dances were at the time, you had to pay a nickel for each dance. It was must have been a fundraiser for something or or whatever. And he had a nickel. So he took his single nickel and he asked Ruth to dance. And he was like enamored right from the start. He was like, this is the girl for me. In fact, apparently he said, this is the girl for me just from seeing her picture. Wow. That's how destined these two were. (laughs) And so then he had to go back to all his friends and borrow nickels so he could keep <laughs> dancing with her. You know, that's that's a lot better than trying to get the quarters from your buddies at the arcade for the for the next game, right? Yeah, so like, yeah, go okay, go get the girl. It's a better Take cause. The nickel, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so essentially, you know, he's the bad boy from the bad, you know, he's not that bad of a bad boy, but you know, he comes he, from, he, he comes across as a bad boy. He's not a bad person, he's not in crime, but right. he's, you know, he's got that uh what the rebel yeah, about kind of like him the, a little bit. We're making this up a little bit now, but I just picture him with like the leather jacket. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the James Dean sort of like, you know. Um, apparently he had a thick head of black curls that oh. really um, made Ruth just melt, you know. Um, in any case, they were, you know, at the end of their high school years. They were 16 years old. They had another year or two of high school. And Ruth, you know, for the time, I mean, this is the mid-1930s. You know, this is pre-World War II, um, women, you know, worked. It's not like women didn't work at all, but right. they, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't mandatory, nope. certainly. It really just depended on the family and, you know, the amount of money you had or needed or whatever. But she always wanted to work. This was part of who she was. And, and the two of them really were pretty bold um, because Ruth actually went on a vacation with a friend in 1935 to L.A. And she ended up getting a job out there um, in L.A., uh, at Paramount Studios. What? Who yeah. goes on vacation and gets a job? Yeah. Wow. She was hired on the spot to work in the steno pool Ooh. at Paramount Studios. Do you even know what that is? I have no idea. I mean, I don't even really remember the details anymore of what a stenographic pool is, a steno pool, but basically it's admin work. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So um, we, will ha- we will have to Google that. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave everybody with some Googling perhaps uh, in this episode. But in any case... Um, they were dating by this point, Izzy and um, and Ruth. And so um, he followed her out there. Wow. So she got a job and he's like, all right, pack it up, leaving Denver, moving out to big L.A. Yeah. And by the way, at this point, neither one of them had dreams of being toy makers. It wasn't no. like they were like, you know what? We're going to start a business. We're going to be Mr. and Mrs. Claus and we're going to make right. toys. Like that, that was not in the plan. In fact, Izzy was um, an artist. And he really wanted to go to art school. That was his dream. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Ruth, I think, just always sort of knew she wanted to do something um, with herself as a career. She didn't just want to be a wife. She wanted to work. It was part of who she was. Um, But in any case, ultimately, they sort of found themselves in business, like many of the entrepreneurs we've discussed this season, almost a little bit by accident. Yeah, they kind of stumbled into the opportunity. Yeah, like they had moxie for sure, right? Like they were, you know, trying to do some, make money and support themselves on the side. And, um, but they they weren't like, okay, we're going to start a company and here's how we're going to do it. It, it, That wasn't the story. Not at all. So the story in part was 
had a lot to do with the fact that they moved from a shabby place in L.A. to a <laughs> slightly better place, right? Yeah, right, exactly. They moved from a basically the <clears throat> Roach Motel into a much nicer place that was slightly more expensive. But the biggest part of the nicer place they moved into is that the new apartment had half of a two-car garage. So now they had kind of a non-in-the-house space to use. Yeah. Now, I have to say, I, I we brushed over this because I just, I'm assuming everybody understood that they got married. This was the right. 1930s. They didn't live together um, first. They they lived separately. They had roommates and whatever in, mm-hmm. in L.A. before they actually moved in together. Um, they got married first. Just yes. to be clear, it was all above board. It was. Yes. Um, but yeah, they started out after their marriage. Um, I think they actually went home to Denver to get married. And then they went back to L.A. because they loved it there. And, and uh, Izzy was going to art school. And... Uh, they just had a dump for a place first yeah. until they found the place with the garage, which, by the way, they could barely afford. I yeah, think. it was it was ten dollars a month more than they had been paying. Mind you, again, it is the 1930s. Ten bucks is a big deal back then. So it was definitely a stretch on their budget. But for whatever reason, they decided we're going to make it happen. Well, you know what? Happy wife, happy life. True. She saw the place. She was like, I don't like the bugs in the other place. <laughs> I want this one, honey. And he was like. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to make that work. Meanwhile, remember, he's still in school. Yep. So this is now around 1938, and Elliot is taking an industrial design class that was focused on designing consumer items from a new plastic at the time called Lucite. Hmm. Yeah. And he sort of put aside his love of artistry and got fascinated with creating new designs out of materials like Lucite. And so he started designing lucite lamps and picture frames and hand mirrors and candelabras, and he's doing this in their apartment. Oh, so he's making stuff for them. Yes. Personally to use. Right. Right. So Ruth, who again, always had this kind of business mind, was super impressed by the quality of what her husband was doing, and she decided that she could sell them. Huh. Now keep in mind, 1938. Right. Yeah. So they bought some equipment from another one of our bizography companies. <laughs> Sears. Yep. Uh, For on, 200 bucks. Yeah. On credit. On credit. Spent Got $200 <laughs> worth of equipment. And they started to produce these items, these Lucite items, in their half of what was a shared garage with their neighbors. Wow. And they were pretty successful at it. She went out and decided she could figure out how to sell these items. That said, their neighbor who shared the garage was not digging it. Yeah, I got to say, I would not be a huge fan of my neighbor having a workshop in our shared space. Yeah, I mean, there were wood shavings and lucite shavings and, you know, dust and schmutz everywhere. (laughs) And they were not digging it. But This whole enterprise did not take them long to get started because 1938, they move there. They start tinkering. 1939, Ruth makes her first sales call. And she is, I mean, that's pretty bold. I'm still just impressed with the time period and the fact that she just went and did this. She went to a company called Zacco Imports and uh, showed the designs. And Zacco said yes and placed their first order for $500 worth of goods. And now, mind you, it is 1939. 500 bucks is a really big order. 
back in the day, literally to the point to where when he goes, the owner of Zacco goes, okay, I'll get $500. Elliot's like shaking so bad he can't find a piece of paper and a pen to take down the order, but finally got his wits about him and did it. And apparently later when he met up with his wife, they're literally jumping up and down, shouting and celebrating their first sale, which is just... So See, cute. Yeah, that love story again, that this partnership between the two is 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 so integral to the whole story. Well, and I think, too, like everybody who's ever sold anything knows what that moment feels yeah. like. You're, you sell that first box of Girl Scout cookies and you're like, woohoo, you know? <laughs> I think everybody can relate to that. And also, I think it's important to point out, we've been using the name Izzy and Elliot sort of interchangeably, but by this point, he's Elliot. And the reason I want to point this out is because... If you were not clear on the relationship between Ruth and now Elliot, she was the boss. Oh, yeah. She ran the show. So they got married in Denver, right? Yes. And as they're driving back to L.A., everyone's still calling him Izzy. Yep. They're in the car, and she, there's not a lot of details here, she convinces him to start going by Elliot. That's all we've really found. But let's She just... made him change his name. <laughs> once, she, once she had the ring on it... She was like, dude, I don't like Izzy. We're going by Elliot. And he was like, yes, ma'am. Okay. Whatever you say, dear. You know, she was like, I want the one with the garage. He was like, yes, dear. Whatever you say. But it just goes to prove just how important she really is to the story. I mean, Elliot's name is in the company, the L of Mattel. But it really, Ruth kind of, she, she was in charge. Right. So essentially, at this point in their story, they aren't making toys. They're making household items, yeah. essentially, out of new materials. He is the tinkerer, the inventor, the artist, the creative, and she is the sales. She is the business. She is she is essentially the money side. She is. There are a lot of other partnerships in modern history that we could compare that to, but this was 1939. We'll get into some of those comparisons right after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. So we are making our way through this love story slash business partnership slash marriage (laughs) of... Ruth and Elliot Handler, and they're making their way towards toys and towards Mattel. But I was saying right before we took a break that Elliot was the creative. He was not the businessman, at least not at that point. He was the guy who was making the beautiful lamps out of Lucite and the picture frames and um, the creative, kitschy new items. And Ruth was the one who was going door-to-door selling. Not door-to-door in the neighborhoods, but like to other businesses, knocking on doors, trying to get orders. She was the saleswoman. Um, And so... I thought that was so noteworthy for the time. And I think it really is interesting looking back on a lot of our bizography episodes where we're talking about women and their influence on businesses before women were really allowed to be influencers, right. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Before women were executives or CEOs um, or presidents or really any of that. They were the wives in many cases of these men And they were half of the business. Without them, the businesses wouldn't have existed. And I was saying before the break that it reminds me of some of the modern partnerships that we have heard about. So in particular, it made me think about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Not that they were married and romantically involved, (laughs) but Steve Wozniak was the brains um, behind Apple. He was the creator, the inventor, the brains. Steve Jobs, not that he wasn't brilliant, but he was the salesman. He, was, he wasn't the tinkerer. He was the salesman. Yes. And he knew what it should look like and how to package it and how to sell it. Inarguably, Steve Jobs was the far more famous of the two. Absolutely. Which means if you look at the Ruth and Elliot partnership, really Ruth should be the more famous one of the two. Because she was the one who was making sure people got the products. Yeah, for the for the the clients they sold their stuff to, she was the face of the company. She was. And so, but just times were different. Yep. So I just thought that was really interesting. Um, I mean, I'm glad the it all turned out the way it did. And right. and by the way, the reason that she was able to do all of the what she was able to do, and the same thing with a lot of these other women we discussed, is because their husbands respected them. Yes. And their husbands, I hate to say it this way, but allowed it. Yeah, I mean, as bad as it sounds, you're right. They were kind of ahead of their time and going, well, my wife is smart. She's capable. She can handle the business side. Yeah. And I mean, look, this is before women could have a bank account without their husbands signing for it, right? Um, And I don't remember exactly what years women weren't allowed to own property and all these other things. So the husbands really had to allow this. Um, And so in any case, I just thought it was worth noting that she was really um, instrumental in what they were doing at the time, and honestly, throughout the entire life of the company. Very, very instrumental. So in any case, here we are. Um, They've got this business going. It's the late 1930s. We're moving into the 1940s. And in 1941, um, as Elliot gets into designing now some costume jewelry pieces, and some of them are becoming really popular, they form a new partnership. They go to 
a well-known Los Angeles jeweler by the name of Zachary Zembe, who they met uh, after he literally just came into their shop uh, and saw one of these designs that Elliot had made, which was called Handler's Hands. It was a pin that was in the shape of a hand. It held a little vase, and you could put a flower in it. And it became really well-known. Anyway, Zachary Zembe and Elliot form a partnership called Elzac. Basically, they took their two names, Elliot and Zachary, <laughs> Elzac, and they started a company. That same year, Ruth kind of steps away from the business a little bit because she had a baby. Yeah. Yeah, little baby girl Barbara. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Keep that one in the back pocket for later. There you go. <laughs> uh, Barbara was born that year, 1941. So Elzac, this new company, actually is, you know, starting to become a real player in the business world, making jewelry, and they're doing well. They've, they're in Hollywood, right? They're in L.A., so they get Hollywood starlets to wear their jewelry. Um, by 1943, Elzac is a national brand, so they're doing well. Yeah, and referral back to another of the companies we've covered before, and we talked about them before, Sears. They're highlighted in the Sears catalog. That's how national and big this Elzac is. Most people have never heard of it. Yeah. But it was huge. Yeah. By 1943, they are doing large-scale production of their pieces, of their Elzac jewelry pieces. Uh, Elliot, again, being the creative, he's focused on coming up with new designs. And they bring in a guy named Matt Matson to oversee manufacturing operations. Matt, M-A-T-T, Matson. Yep. Mm-hmm. Put that one in your back pocket, too. <laughs> uh, they're moving along. And, of course, now we're starting to get into wartime in yes. the world. Right, because now it's 1943, 1944, and uh, the company is doing well, but it is coming into wartime. Things are changing um, in the world, and things are changing at their company. Yes, they are. Things are definitely changing, in fact, because like we said, Elzac's huge at this point, national brand. And because of that, you need some more capital. So Zachary, the Zach part of Elzac, brings in some more investors into the company. But unfortunately, with more investors means more voices and more opinions. Things start getting kind of hectic to the point where Matt Matson quits straight up up and leaves Elzac. And when he leaves Elzac, mind you, Ruth's still at home with her babies at this point, too, because the uh, Barbara's younger brother, Ken, is now born at this point. Well, I'm sorry, what? Uh, Barbara's younger brother, Ken, oh, is uh, born at this point. Another name to put in your back pocket, people. <laughs> right. And so this kind of reawakens the business in Ruth. She's been on the back, in the back seat for a couple of years, and she cracks her knuckles and says, it's time to get back to work. Yeah. Matt leaving sparks that. Yeah, Ruthie wants back in. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So it's 1944, and uh, Ruth convinces Elliot that they should go visit Matt. Uh, So they do. They go out to see Matt, and he is working in his garage. It's got tons of equipment uh, and all of that. And Elliot decides to allow Matt to use some of his designs that he had made Mm -hmm. for picture frames. And Ruth says, yeah, Let's do that. Matt, you make the picture frames and I'll sell them. Because meanwhile, you remember, Elliot is still tied to Elzac. He he can't just go running off. Yep, he's doing jewelry. He's doing jewelry. So they make these picture frames. They start doing well with the picture frames. There's some material changes they have to make because of the war. They can't use lucite. They can't use the high-quality wood. So they find a really inexpensive way to make good-looking picture Mm -hmm. frames. And again, because materials are so hard to find— the customers are excited to have them, you know, the, the stores that want to sell picture frames. And so they start to be successful and they get their first $3,000 order 
1944 for this new venture that at this point doesn't have a name. Correct. It's just Ruth and Matt kind of making things happen. (laughs) While uh, Elliot's working over at Elzac and supporting them. Right. Emotionally. Right. Right, exactly. But that soon also comes tumbling down. The Elliot part of Elzac. Because he too starts to get frustrated with the investors. He too gets sick and tired of it and says, you know what? I, I'm ready to branch out into new stuff. So when the partners that he didn't agree with offered to buy out Elliot's share of Elzac for what was really crummy at the time, only 10 grand, he and Ruth said, you know what? This is our opportunity to get into something we want to do again. They took the money and ran. They took that $10,000 and went to go sit down with Matt. Which was kind of brilliant because it turns out Elzac was in bankruptcy within, I think, the next year. Yeah, like 1948, Elzac ceases to exist. Okay, a couple of years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they made a smart move yes, to take their 10K and get the <laughs> heck out of there. So yeah, so they go back to Matt and in their very creative way of naming companies, uh, just the way they did Elzac, they took, once again, the two first names, <laughs> Matt and Elliot, and combined them together, Matt L. Mattel. Yep. And Mattel is born. Yes, it is. Yeah. So this is now 1944, 1945, Mm -hmm. as they are starting to kick off Mattel. But remember, they're making picture frames. Yeah. Which is not what they do. Right. So how did they get into toys? Well, that all happens because Elliot, being the inventor creative type, realizes that while they're making these picture frames, once again, as we talked about in the garage workshop and since, there's a bunch of scrap stuff just kind of laying everywhere. And he decides, listen, this is our business. We're running it. We need to do something with this other than just throw it in the trash. So he starts using the scraps to make dollhouse furniture. What? Like little chairs and tables for dollhouses, which is popular in the 40s. But lo and behold, that takes off. They're making way more money in just a year or two on the dollhouse furniture than they are the picture frame business. And what's crazy is it seemed like everything was going well, but for whatever reason, Matt Matson decided to sell out that same year. Yep. Um, he moved on. And really, we don't know much else about him after that. Um, so the Matt in Mattel kind of ceased to be in the story after the first year. Yeah. And trust me, I did a lot of digging you really can't find anything else about him after he leaves Mattel. He lived a very quiet life, and that was it. Yeah, I wonder if he had any regrets. I don't know. In our very first episode, I think it was, we talked about Sears and Roebuck. Yeah. And how Roebuck kind of bowed out. And I wonder if, and Roebuck never had any regrets, because Sears, as it turned out, died young. Right. So Roebuck was like, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I did a good Because he lived thing. a long life. <laughs> uh, I wonder if Matt Matson ever had any regrets, mm. because as we know, Mattel, quite successful now. Yeah. In any case, I think the whole move into dollhouse furniture gave them the idea to do toys in general. Yep. And so in 1947, they branch out to their next toy, and it is the Yuka Doodle. <laughs> Which did, do you know what a Yuka Doodle is? I do not. Well, it, it's kind of in the name, right? Yuka Doodle? I mean, it's I a figure ukulele. ukulele. Right, yeah. it is a ukulele, but it's a ukulele and a music box. All in one. This was apparently wildly popular back in the 40s. So you could play your little ukulele as a kid. And if you realized, you know, your parents got tired of the awful stringing, you could spin the little knob on the side and it was a music box. Totally creative for its time. So was that a good thing for the parents or was this like the first toy that really annoyed parents? That's the question. (laughs) Probably both. So can we blame annoying noise making toys on Ruth and Elliot? 
I mean, okay. We have to find. We usually try to find one bad thing about each story. This will be the bad thing. The be. loud beeping noises from the toys. The random stuff that goes beep boop at 2 a.m. in the night. Right. That's because of Mattel. It's all their fault. <laughs> All right. In any case, the Yuka Doodle comes along in 1947. Mattel incorporates with their headquarters in L.A. by 1948. And then they start making toy after hit toy after hit toy. So we'll get into some of those toys, how they came to be, uh, and how they moved the company along right after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. So it's the late 40s, early 50s. Mattel is incorporated, and they're making some toys. There's not a lot of... um, you know, historical evidence left of what all toys they had in those years. I'm sure some Mattel aficionados somewhere knows. Um, (laughs) But what we could really find is just that they were making toys between 1948 and 1955, Mm -hmm. and sales were going well. By 1955, sales were up to 5 million, which is not bad. And then uh, they introduced their next hit. Of course, first first we had the Yuka Doodle. Yes. (laughs) uh, and And I'm sure they sold many of those but probably some other toys as well, as we said. But their next big hit was the burp gun. Yeah. That makes me think of indigestion, but that's <laughs> not what it was. It wasn't a prank toy, no. It was actually like a toy gun uh, called a burp gun, and it was super, super popular. Yeah. But of note, 
A Burp gun is actually two things. One, the toy gun made by Mattel. And two, a nickname for the PPSH-41. Is that how you say that? Yes. Uh, a Soviet submachine gun that made a unique noise, I guess, that sounded like a burp yeah. while it was firing. It was World War II. It was a submachine gun, and it, yeah, it sounds very peculiar, burpy. to say the least. Yeah, it's very, weird. Very burpy. Uh, in any case, the toy gun version, the fully automatic cap gun, as it were, uh, was quite popular. And also in that same year, uh, another brilliant move by Mattel. They partner with another famous company. Another famous company known as Disney, the Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, the, the Mickey, Mickey Mouse, Mouse Club. Club. <laughs> yes. Remember the theme song? Uh, yeah, I actually have it right here. Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? I loved that show growing up. Yes. Total side note, uh, in preparation for this episode, we were Googling around a little bit, and if you just need something to kill some time later, Google (gasps) Ryan Gosling, Justin Timberlake, Mickey Mouse Club, and watch some of the videos. Crazy. Crazy. They're so tiny. So tiny. (laughs) Not actually part of our episode, so we didn't think it made sense to bring it in here, but worth a Google for sure. Uh, In any case, a brilliant move by Mattel Mm -hmm. to partner with the very popular brand new Mickey Mouse Club by Disney. And again, like sort of one of the early, you know, brand partnerships like that. I mean, they were advertising, you know, commercials existed, so they weren't the first to do commercials, but uh, partnering with a company like that, there they are, a toy company, uh, engaging with, you know, a kid's show like that that was super popular, smart. So, all was going well, and as we alluded, this is the era when famous toys start coming yep. out of Mattel on the regular. It's 1959 when Mattel introduces the Barbie doll. Barbie, beautiful Barbie, I'll make believe that I am you. You can tell it's Mattel, it's swell. And a lot of little girls <laughs> did, in fact, pretend they were Barbie, uh, Barbie eventually became the best-selling toy ever. Wow. Ever. Yeah. Uh, interesting to note that the original Barbie uh, was inspired by a German doll called the Build Lily doll, which Ruth purchased for her own daughter, Barbara, a.k.a. Barbie, in 1956. <laughs> and the Build Lily doll wasn't originally designed for kids. It was designed for adults. Weird. Yeah. Um, but it was based on a comic strip, strip about a provocative woman <laughs> and... It just, like, German kids got a hold of it, even though it wasn't really meant for them, and were dressing her up and playing with her and whatever. And so uh, Ruth thought this would be a great idea. There's another whole side story about Ruth and the invention of Barbie is just that um, her daughter was playing with paper dolls Mm -hmm. and dressing them up. And, you know, she watched how frustrating that was because the clothes wouldn't stay on the paper dolls. Um, And she had this whole back and forth with Elliot about whether or not a womanly shaped doll was appropriate. Right. That was that's the interesting part is that was the big argument at first was not would it sell? Could we make it? It was is it appropriate? Right. And she was all for it because she knew that the girls were sort of playing grown up in a sense. Um, But Elliot wasn't so sure. So it wasn't until she brought this German version of what she wanted to do home that he agreed and they moved forward. And I will say, though, he, he was even still a little specti- skeptical about it being able to sell yep. until they took it to one of those like toy convention show things. And apparently they sold all of them. They had 
billions of orders or whatever. And he went, okay, all right, Ruth, you were right. And she said, yes, I know. Yeah, I'm always right. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, in 1961, Barbie finally gets her boyfriend, the Ken doll. Ken. <laughs> Ken also named after their son, which is a little weird. Yeah. But okay, sure. <laughs> I mean, for most of America, there is no thought of the fact that the names were from a brother and sister. Right, of course not. Right. It's a neat way for them to have their kids' namesake kind of. Forever. Keep going forever, forever, right? and um, and the fact that they were brother and sister, and that most people who play with those dolls have them make out with each other, neither here nor there. <laughs> totally fine. Whatever you want to do, it's all good. Oh man. Okay, we're gonna stop that line of discussion right, right now. Uh, the next big blockbuster toy for Mattel came out in 1968, and that was. They're new. They're authentic. They're the fastest miniature metal cars you've ever seen. New Hot Wheels, only from Mattel. And because of that, Nick Bean has changed. I mean, if there weren't Hot Wheels, you'd be a different man. Yeah, I would not be the same person I am today. Sure. I was the cool kid with the, I told it at the beginning of the show, I was the cool kid with the tire thing with all the Hot Wheels cars That's in right. it. It was great. I think everybody, boys and girls alike, played with Hot Wheels, yeah. right? Everyone liked the vroom. Yeah, Hot Wheels were fun. And the track especially, I liked. Oh, yeah. yeah, the track Most was fun. cool. All right, so that takes us up to the early 1970s. In 1971, Mattel made another interesting uh, decision. It wasn't a partnership so much as a purchase, um, but along the same lines of partnering with Disney, they purchased, I don't think people know this, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus. Yeah, they owned the circus for a while, which... I guess thinking about it kind of makes sense, right? The circus is fun and whimsical and kid-friendly, yeah. and Mattel wants to be all about that. But, yeah, I never knew they owned them. I Crazy. know. Well, the Feld family who started the circus um, stayed involved. Uh, mm -hmm. Even though Mattel bought them, they left the family in charge. And I think most people who know anything about the history of Barnum & Bailey just have heard about the Feld family. Right. And that's kind of it. Um, but also in the early 1970s, we kind of get to a little bit of uh, the darker side of the story and and almost like uh, not the end, because, of course, as we know, Mattel, as we started the episode by saying, is going strong yes. to this day. But sort of the beginning of the end for the original founding family. Right. And so I think even though we're sort of at 1971, we have to backtrack a year because in 1970, Ruth Handler was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she had a modified radical mastectomy, which was the most common treatment at the time. And um, that sort of put her a little bit out of commission from a work perspective. And so they brought in a, and they had, listen, by this point, it's a huge company. They've got a whole executive team and all of that. Well, one of the guys on the executive team was Seymour Rosenberg. He was the executive vice president at the time. And in 1971 and really through 1973, Mattel was issuing false and misleading financial statements. Mm. Yeah. It all sort of came to a head in 1973 when the company reported a $32 million loss just three weeks after stockholders been, had been assured that the company was in good shape. Yeah, not good. Yeah. Mm. So the stock plummets, that causes the SEC to investigate, and it's not good. And, and like I said, it's sort of unclear at this point how much Ruth was involved in the day-to-day. -day. Also interesting that Elliot's name isn't really anywhere on this drama. Right. So he must have sort of stayed on the creative side, uh, and she was more money and operations. Definitely. And so uh, do we blame it all on Ro on Rosenberg? Um, I mean, the SEC didn't. No. 
ultimately, uh, I think it was five years later, 1978, when the, finally the SEC uh, brought charges and Ruth Handler and uh, Seymour Rosenberg were charged uh, with a bunch of different indictments. Yeah. They were fined $57,000 each, and they both got 41-year prison sentences. Ooh. But don't worry, Ruth didn't go to jail. <laughs> uh, those sentences were suspended on the condition that they uh, each do 500 hours of uh, community service, essentially, each year for five years. Wow. So 2,500 years total. So we'll say very good trade-off. 2,500 hours total, not years. <laughs> it's still a very good trade-off for both of them, though. Compared Versus to, 41 years in jail? Yeah. It would have been the rest of their lives in jail. Yeah, and that's yeah. pretty much, you're right, that's kind of where the handlers get kicked out in a sense of Mattel because shortly after they sell off the last of what they own in the company, yeah, right, so they the, get ousted. So the timeline is all this goes down in 73. Right. By 74, they're kicked out of the company. Yeah. Elliot and Ruth are kicked out of the company. Um, the indictments come down, I think, in 78. And in 80, 1980, uh, Ruth yeah. and Elliot just cash out all yep. of their Mattel stock and they're done. A side note on this is, you know, Ruth was a powerhouse, and after going through breast cancer herself, she started a whole other company making prosthetics for breast cancer survivors yeah. who had gone through mastectomies. The company's called Nearly Me, and it still exists to this day. Yeah. So. It's very, very cool. Yeah. Very cool that she got involved in something like that. Yeah. So, in any case, that was sort of the downfall of the handlers as it related yeah. to Mattel. Um, it's really unclear whose fault it really was. Ruth does say, um, you know, when interviewed about this, I act like she's still around. She's she's gone now. Yeah. But when she was interviewed about this after the fact, she said it was the breast cancer. She wasn't paying attention. She wasn't really around. And it sort of happened by accident from her perspective. Yeah, she was very, I think she said, quote, unfocused on the business while she was dealing with it. So Right, which is understandable. Oh, yeah. So maybe it's all this guy Rosenberg. Maybe uh, not. We'll never yikes. really know because we weren't there. But uh, at the end of the day, that was sort of the end of the family involvement. Um, in any case, in 1983, things were not looking good mm -mm. for Mattel. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. They had a $394 million loss after they tried to get into... Video games. Yeah, we talked about this in our Atari episode, didn't we? The 1983 gaming bust where everybody just lost tons of money. Yep. Mattel was wrapped up in that. They sure were. They were part of that crash of the video games Ooh. industry. Uh, yeah. And so it hurt them uh, pretty badly, so much so that they almost, you know, didn't survive. It's a pretty bad series of events within a decade. Yeah. Pretty bad. Ultimately, 1987, they get a uh, new chairman and he starts really cutting into the finances, making sure that they can survive. He does that, though, by closing a lot of plants, cutting salaries, uh, curbing marketing, and they try to sort of tighten the belt, yes. if you will, and, and come back. Well, 1988, they figure out a way to do it, and that is by re-collaborating, if you will. Is that a new word? <laughs> re-collaborating With Disney. Um, and think about all of what Disney was doing in the 80s and 90s um, with all the new movies, and all the toys that came from each of those movies, um, they go on to then make deals with a whole bunch of other companies. Yeah, like Hanna-Barbera and Turner. So all those cartoons, you know, Flintstones and all that stuff. They got a whole bunch of toys um, from all of that. Like Tom and Jerry, I think was another one too. So that that really helps revive the brand and bring them from the doldrums of near bankruptcy that they were in for quite a little while. Yeah, and basically brought them back to reasonable shape. Yeah. And... From there, essentially, from the early 90s through today, the Mattel company has continued to sort of 
um, cement its place in history. They, you know, Barbies were hugely hot again in the '90s, and um, and they still are, but they really had they flourished again in the '90s. Uh, I think it was the 30th anniversary of Barbie, the her birthday, her 30th birthday. She was on the cover of the Smithsonian Magazine. (laughs) Um, They've created all kinds of famous Barbies that were. Um, after famous people mm-hmm. and, you know, special editions and collections and collectible versions. And there are conferences. And as we said at the beginning of the episode, movies and all kinds of Some stuff. of the research I did said that there are collections of Barbies alone and collections of Hot Wheels alone, but just the Mattel toys that are worth over a million dollars of Great. people who have all that collected together. So it's, it's a cultural icon. Oh, yeah. For sure. Right. There have been single Barbie dolls that have sold at auction for thousands of oh, dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Tons. Yeah. So um, they're iconic for sure. But just to be 100% sure that they stay iconic, <laughs> they bought up basically every other toy company you've ever heard of. They've got Tyco Toys. Yep. That belongs to them. They've got the Pleasant Company. You know, the ones that make the American Girl dolls. Oh, yeah. That's Mattel now, too. Yep. Uh, and then they had the Learning Company, which was famous, but also a big part of their video game debacle. Yeah. And yeah. then in that same kind of span in the 90s when they bought all those up, that's when I think they probably made one of their biggest acquisitions ever in the history of the company. They got Fisher Price. Yeah. Wow. That is a huge chunk of their business to this day because, I mean, didn't we all kind of play with Fisher Price stuff as a kid? And they were like approved happy toys. Oh, like yeah. those are the ones like my mom would buy me. Yeah, that's the stuff that you see the one year olds arming on with their gums all the way up to five year olds still playing with xylophones <laughs> in the room, right? That's it's just they're classic, classic toys. And yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't know that Mattel was Fisher Price. Yeah. That's part of one of the most fascinating parts of this episode is that they're that ingrained in so much of our lives, all the way from our youngest age to now. I mean I'll be honest with you, Dana. I didn't realize this till just the other day while we were researching. I actually still have some of my old Hot Wheels from when I was a kid. Okay, that's adorable. <laughs> so they're still a part of my life. I think I, I when I when my daughter was little, I do not have my original Barbies, though I did have the Barbie camper back nice. in the day. But my daughter had Barbies, and I would buy an extra one in the box and not like I'd let her oh, play with on one, and I'd keep nice. one in the box. <laughs> and I finally, I think, got rid of them. Like I sold them all finally after I moved for like ten the tenth time yeah. or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, they are part of of history for sure, mm-hmm. and not going away. Like we started the episode by saying, look, this is a hugely successful company to this day, and they are still innovating. They are adding digital, you know, aspects to what they're yep. doing with the toys. They now have a line of gender neutral dolls, and they've got a you know, real-life action Barbie movie coming out in 2020 with one of the biggest stars of all time. So, yeah. I think when it comes down to it, this is the kind of company that, even if it were to start to seriously fall apart, someone somewhere's not going to let it die. Right? I I agree with that. I think this is a company that is more than just a company. Yes, it's a company. Yes, there are shareholders. Yes, people care about that. But it's a beloved toy company. And who didn't play with one of those brands of toys? Somebody. Right. You know, everybody played with one of those toys somewhere along the way. Yes, you did. Yeah. And so I agree with you. I think it's a company that's going to go on and on and on. So we do like to make predictions sometimes as we wrap the episode. And I say Mattel is here to stay. On that note, we are done for the episode and for the season. Hope you enjoyed season one of Bizography. If you missed any of the episodes, be sure to check them out. And we'll see you back here for season two. 
Bizography is a production of iHeartRadio and DB Media. I'm your host, Dana Barrett. My co-host is Nick Bean. Our producer is Tari Harrison. And our executive producer is Jonathan Strickland. Have questions? Want to give us feedback? Or have a company you'd like us to cover? Email us at info at bizography.show or contact us on social. I'm at the Dana Barrett on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just search for me on LinkedIn. Thanks for your support. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.